Wanted to talk today about some of the events that happened on the weekend of April 3 to April 4. The one that has really hit the headlines is that the Ukrainians have managed to push the Russians back north of Kiev and have entered a number of towns where they have found hundreds of people who were, to be perfectly blunt, murdered. Uh, there were entire streets where there was a dead man outside of each house where the Russians had gone in, grabbed the head of household, and simply executed them. Uh, there were several dozen bodies that were found with their hands bound and shot execution style, and then there were more than a handful of, of mass graves. Uh, as the Ukrainians have advanced further north, we know that the original massacre that was discovered in Bucha on April 3rd has now been replicated in a number of other locations. Uh, so we are definitely looking at war crimes quality of activity here. The only real question in that is who is ultimately responsible? A regiment commander, the theater commander, Putin himself, individual foot soldiers. We don't have an answer for that, uh, but this definitely qualifies as war crimes under any definition you could care to use. Almost lost in the background of that was a statement by the deputy prime minister of Poland, one Jaroslaw Kaczynski, that he was open, that Poland was open to the idea of the United States stationing nuclear weapons on Polish soil. Now, normally when American troops and American nukes come into the discussion, the answer is usually not just no or an emphatic no, but a lot of grandstanding about the no. The United States, in order to have a foreign deployment of size, requires something called a status of forces agreement that requires the local government to basically stand aside if there are any crimes committed by American forces. They'll be tried by an American military court. Uh, and because of that, the United States has very few large-scale deployments unless there's something else in play. So, for example, today, the United States only has three significant deployments. Germany and Japan, where the SOFA agreements date back to World War II, and in Korea, where they date back to the Korean War. So there are mitigating factors in all of these that have prevented the United States from having large-scale forces really anywhere else. And so here we have a European leader actively, publicly advocating not just for American forces, but for the most typically politically divisive type of forces that the Americans have, the nuclear arsenal. The question is why and why now? Let's start with Kaczynski himself. He may be deputy prime minister, but he's actually the guy who's in charge of Poland. Uh, in many ways, Kaczynski is a combination of some of the less desirable aspects of Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and Williams Gen William Jennings Bryan. He, uh, he's a populist, he's a nationalist, he's a horrible manager, and he has uh, refused to go away. He has been at the or near the top of the Polish political scene now for roughly 20 years, and his position as DPM allows him to tell everyone to, what to do without having the day-to-day -day responsibilities for actually carrying out the job. So it's kind of the perfect spot for someone who's not good at management, but has the charisma to attract a lot of votes. And he's made a good world for himself. What that means, of course, is that Kaczynski, regardless of what you think of his personality or his politics, does speak for the Polish government because he really is the Polish government. So that's the who. Uh, let's talk about the why. Right now, the dominant concern in NATO countries is that the Russians will not stop, not just until they've gotten all of Ukraine, but until they've moved beyond Ukraine. The problem is for the Russians to feel secure, 
they need to secure a series of gateway territories that separate the Russian space from the rest of the world. And Putin's goals for the last 20 years is about getting Russian troops on the ground in as many of those gateways as possible. That's what the Georgian War was about, in part. That's what Nagorno-Karabakh was about. That's what the Crimea War was about. Ukraine, unfortunately for the Ukrainians, sits between the Russians in two of those gateways. The Bessarabian Gap that moves over into the Turkish space, and the Polish Gap, which goes into Poland and the German space. Which means that if the Russians do succeed in conquering Ukraine, and I'm still of the belief that in time, with a sufficient application of artillery and in human violence, they will, then the next stop is to move into Ukraine. The specifics of the Polish Gap is that it's, a, it's where the plane narrows. So if you are east of Poland, the flatlands of Central Eurasia and Eastern, or sorry, what, Central Eurasia and Eastern Europe are about 2,000 miles north of south. But then it suddenly narrows at the Belarusian Polish border to about 300 miles. And then it narrows to about half of that as you move into Poland between the Carpathians and something called the Missourian Lake District, which is simply too boggy and rugged for tanks to move through. So from the Russian point of view, they don't have to just get Ukraine. They need to move into Poland proper and fairly deep into Poland proper. The, large, the logical stopping point for a Russian advance would be the eastern outskirts of the city of Warsaw, right on the Vistula River. That's the logical break point. It's the narrowest point of the plain. There's a river to provide a defensive bulwark. So if you're in Poland and you can read a map, you know that if the Russians win in Ukraine, they're coming for you one way or another. Ergo why he wants nukes. The question is, will the United States do it? And if so, how? The problem is that the United States has had nuclear weapons in Europe, specifically in Germany now for decades. And yes, it's a deterrent. I don't mean to suggest otherwise. But if you really want to stop the Russians from entering Poland, you don't just need a nuclear facility. You would need the army facilities to protect it as well. You don't just send a nuke unescorted. The question then is, where would the base be? If you put it to the west of Warsaw, to the west of the Vistula River, on the west side of the gap, the Russians will interpret that as an oblique acknowledgement that anything east of the river is theirs. So if the goal is to stop Russia before it can move into NATO territory, you need to put the American facilities as far east in Poland as is possible so that the Russians know that the day they cross the border, they're facing American troops directly. That, of course, puts them directly in harm's way, which is the whole point. So, where does this take us? We've got a Russia who has already been demonstrated to be boundless in its cruelty because it sees this war as an existential threat. They're not going to stop. And while I might personally have some issues with the Polish Deputy Prime Minister, he's not wrong. If the goal here is to prevent a NATO-Russian fight, and for whatever reason we can't stop that in Ukraine, Poland is where the line will be drawn. And that requires forward position troops to make it stick. Whether it'll be done or not, of course, is up to the politics of the Europeans and Washington. And it's simply too soon to know how that'll shake out. But this is going to be the debate. All right. That's everything for me. Until next time.
is an enormous paradox of Europe. It created humanity. Before the European conquest of the world, the Mongols had never heard of the Congolese. The Congolese had no idea of the Aztecs. The Aztecs didn't know of the Japanese. The world was a series of sequestered universes. And what the British and the French and the Spanish did is ripped apart the veil, the very comforting veil of a small world. And for the first time, identified humanity as a whole and forced humanity to be aware of itself. It wasn't their intent. Their intent was gold and land. And the outcome, however, was to create the first global human civilization. They also conquered nature. You could see that as you walked in the streets of Paris or London in 1913. The transformation of the night, to me, is always the most important thing. The night ended all things for all, most people. Now, it was simply another time of the day. You turned on the lights, you turned on the heat, and you moved on. And as I like to say, and then you could go to a concert and listen to Mozart. And any civilization that produces Mozart can be forgiven many sins. And they had many sins indeed. But what they did was magnificent. They had thought they had reached a point where they had solved everything, but there was a paradox of Europe. Having conquered the world, they never conquered themselves. Europe never united. Attempt after attempt to either forge an understanding or to conquer all of Europe failed. The Spanish failed, the French failed, the Germans failed, and the British didn't even try. But here was the paradox. This area of the world, this smallest continent, second smallest continent of the world, if you will, conquered India, overwhelmed China in many ways, transformed Africa. Even though there was a revolution still shaped Latin America and North America, reshaped the world and yet could never bring peace in Europe. The conquest of the world coincided with a civil war in Europe that never ended. When you look at Europe's geography, you understand it. There are peninsulas and peninsulas coming off of peninsulas and islands and mountain ranges that can't be passed and vast steppes. No one could militarily conquer it. No one could bring it together. No one could eliminate the tiny peoples, the Hungarians, and replace them with a general European so to this day, in Europe, is the second smallest continent, or the smallest if you're willing to dismiss Australia as a continent, which I am, but my wife isn't. She's from Australia. <laughs> but it's the second smallest continent, and it has 52 sovereign nations. You can drive through the uh, northwestern part of Europe, and in three hours, passed through four languages, an endless malice. The French have not forgotten what the Germans did. The Germans remember what they did, but think that happened to someone else. <laughs> the Flemish hate the Walloons in Belgium, and the Dutch think they float above all of this. Yet no one floats above Europe in any way. And if you travel through this place, and you drink late at night in a kind of working class bar, 
you see Europe. As my father used to say, never forget, never forgive, which I think should be the slogan of the European masses, if not of the financial elite who are happy to forget anything. This inability to unite culminates in 31 years of horror. From 1914 to 1945, in the most extraordinary collapse of a civilization that you could imagine, the Europeans killed, for political reasons, 100 million people, give or take. This in a continent that never had more than 500 million people. The slaughter was extraordinary. Genghis Khan couldn't pull this off. And what they did to themselves between 1914 and 1945 at the Battle of the Somme, in the starvation of Ukrainian peasants, in the Holocaust, in Hiroshima, to go out of Europe for the moment. What was done was extraordinary by Euro-American civilization. What was the most extraordinary thing was it was a magnificent civilization. It was a civilization of culture and of science. It was a sophisticated place which teaches us something about the distinction between sophistication and decency. It was a place that you would not imagine was possible. In fact, Norman Angell, who won the Nobel Prize, wrote a book called The Great Illusion in which he demonstrated convincingly that given the interdependence of Europe, given the financial consequences of a war, it was impossible that a war should take place. He wrote that in 1910. And he was a very smart man, but there was a belief in Europe, which is very important to remember when we talk about the EU, that if you have economic stability, no one is crazy enough to upset that. That reasonable people, and we all knew that Europeans were reasonable people, the quintessence of reasonableness, they all understood fully and completely, that there could be no war. Of course there was. And it was a war that was unimagined by any of the people beforehand. And it ended in the fact that Europe, which had created the world, came out in 1945 as occupied territory. It had lost its sovereignty. One part was occupied by the Soviets. One part was occupied by the United States. Each treated the occupation differently. But it was a fundamental truth. The essence of sovereignty is war and peace, to be able to decide it. And the decision on war and peace after 1945 was not made in Berlin, London, Paris. It was made in Washington and in Moscow. And in that sense, the question of whether or not there was going to be a war in Europe was in the hands of others. I should point out, and I think this is an important thing to remember, how incredibly responsible the Americans and the Soviets were. The management, the care which they took not to allow the war to happen, in retrospect, living through it was a different matter, it was extraordinary. Imagine the people, the diplomats in 1914 in Europe, or in 1939, having nuclear weapons. Would they have been so cautious? I say this only because whenever I travel to Europe, I'm accused of being a cowboy. I don't like cows, I don't like horses. <laughs> Loud noises scare me, so 
I, I don't know why, but they had this image of the Americans as being cowboys, a continent that killed 100 million people in 31 years regards the Americans as violent. But here's the thing about the Europeans. They understood that this could never happen again. All of their efforts ultimately came to making sure it never happened again. The Europeans really didn't recover their sovereignty until 1992. When the Soviet Union collapsed, the United States lost interest in Europe. And at that point, the total power devolved back to Europe. And that was also the year, coincidentally, that the Maastricht Treaty was signed. And the Maastricht Treaty created the modern institutions of the European Union, from the Euro to the Brussels bureaucracy and everything else. And the intent of the European Union was two things. It was written in their basic documents. Peace and prosperity. Not pursuit of happiness, that is, not the pursuit of these things, but the presence of these things. The assumption was again Norman Angell's assumption. A prosperous continent cannot go to war. If you secure prosperity, there'll be peace. And there was a sense of European exceptionalism that we Europeans, having done these horrible things, have learned. And we've learned that it's not good to do these horrible things. If life were that simple, then it would be over. But having learned things in my own life has not kept me from repeating them. Uh, we are who we are. The great test of Europe, therefore, was could this Maastricht Treaty, could this European Union, and please remember that the European Union, the idea of European integration was not a European idea. It was an American idea embedded in the Marshall Plan, resisted by the Europeans. The French did not want to be integrated with the Germans. The English didn't want to be integrated with anybody. And nobody wanted to be integrated with the Italians. <laughs> Europe resisted. The Americans forced the first tentative steps. But then the Europeans embraced it as their own. And they had this sense of exceptionalism that we have understood what no one else understands. War is terrible. Well, yes, war is terrible. And they understood the key to it, which was prosperity. But they never asked the question, what happens if you can't deliver prosperity? What happens if the business cycle hits you? In seven weeks in 2008, history transformed itself. On August 8th, 2008, the Russians invaded Georgia. This had two dimensions. First, it announced, history doesn't end so simply. <laughs> We're back. And they announced it with authority. And the invasion of Georgia had little to do with Georgia. If you remember, there was the Orange Revolution in the Ukraine, creating a pro-Western government, and a feeling in Ukraine that they were now part of the West. And this was a message that the Russians were delivering. Georgia was an ally of the West. This is what American guarantees are worth. And it was a lesson that took hold in the Ukraine for quite a while. And certainly has to be understood if we understand what's going on in Ukraine today, that lesson. The second thing that happened seven weeks later was Lehman Brothers, where the post-Cold War geopolitics collapsed 
in August, I was redefined, the tremendous prosperity of the business cycle between what I would call the savings and loan fiasco and the third world debt crisis on one side and the other side the subprime crisis, the financial structure collapsed. So peace and prosperity are the official foundations of the European Union. Peace had not been shattered but had been strained and prosperity was certainly tested. This was the fourth financial crisis for the United States since World War II. This was settled as all the others. A, the Federal Reserve Chairman, the Secretary of the Treasury, gathered a group of bankers together in a room on a Sunday afternoon, broke every imaginable law of American banking and finance, and came up with a, with a solution that worked. There was an understanding, we gotta get out of this. There's also an understanding that the large institutions had to participate and that there was no formal structure for really thinking about it and no time to go to Congress. And Congress knew what they were doing and they said, okay, yeah, we really want the banks to open on Monday. So we wound up in a situation where the Americans solved the problem, the Europeans never did. They first had their own subprime crisis and I always enjoy the Europeans blaming the US for that. I point out, yes, we sold you crummy bonds, but you bought them. They don't seem to draw a connection here. <laughs> the essential problem of Europe is that Germany exports over 50% of its GDP. The fourth largest economy exists with half of its economy dependent on exports. Of those exports, about a little over half go to the European free trade zone. The Germans need that free trade zone because if they were blocked from access to these countries, their economy would, if not collapse, be reeling at the very least. So when the Germans threaten to throw people out, every one they throw out is a market they potentially lose. And hence, in six years, they throw no one out, but they have been very aggressive in lending to them at various times so they can continue buying their goods. The German control of the euro, which was political, fixed its price at a level that benefited the Germans, but didn't give the Greeks, for example, the ability to value when devaluation would have solved many problems for them early on. The regulations of Brussels were such that it was almost impossible for entrepreneurial activity to take place, plus the tax code was so punitive to anyone successful that you'd be crazy to try to be an entrepreneur. There was no Google threatening Siemens. The German corporations and the other European corporations of the 1950s style remain intact, where in the United States, digital equipment, prime data general went reeling when Microsoft came up. No such thing happened in Europe. So Europe remained very stable and very needy of itself. The result was, since you couldn't be entrepreneurial legally, you were entrepreneurial illegally. The only way to start a business and have any chance of surviving is in the black. Because if you follow the regulations, if you follow the tax code, you couldn't possibly survive. Not that the Greeks really respected the tax code. 
the government creates regulations and then fully expects everybody to disobey them, because the government knows that if you obey them, unemployment will surge in Romania, will surge in Poland, and so on and so forth. The European institutionalization of regulations, which if followed would crush you, forced huge amounts of the economy off into the black market. That cut the tax base and created a sovereign debt crisis. The countries couldn't pay off their debt. The next thing that happened was a debate, and two narratives emerged. In one narrative, the shiftless, lazy, self-indulgent Greeks fooled the naive and simple Deutsche Bank examiners into making them loans. In the other narrative, which now is being heard, the Germans rigged the EU to make certain that their need for exports, and it was a real need, they couldn't back off, their need for exports was protected. So in one story, it was the irresponsibility of everybody in Europe. On the other story, it was the Germans being Germans again. And if you go to Europe now, the animosity against Germans is extraordinary. The first thing that the new Prime Minister of Greece did was visit a shrine for the dead for World War II. This feeling is back, not in the what I call the Financial Times elite. You can't feel it in the Financial Times. For them, capital has no country. But if you go to the bars, talk to people who are not involved in international trade, the European Union has turned into a catastrophe. The unemployment rate in Greece is 26%. The unemployment rate in Spain is 23%. If you draw a map of southern Europe, the unemployment rate is somewhere between 20 and 22%. This unemployment rate is the same level as in the United States during the Great Depression. Southern Europe is in depression. Germany's unemployment rate is 5%. There is no longer a common European fate. There is no longer this idea that all of us Europeans share this fate. It was as if Texas had decided during the bailouts and everything, it would not give any money to Illinois. It probably would have done that if it could, but it's sort of hilarious. Yet that's what happened in Europe. In fact, in this latest quantitative easing, as they call printing money, it is not being administered by the European Central Bank. It's being administered by the national banks with two rules. One, you may only buy assets in your own nation so that no other, and secondly, no other nation is going to be responsible if this fails. On the one side, the Germans do not want to be responsible for other countries. On the other side, other countries do not want Germany dictating and have no trust of the European bureaucrats. This is the breakpoint of the European Union. At the point when the core issue, it's not the euro, it's the central bank. When the central bank had to devolve authority on the national banks, which by the way don't have the staff to do this, I mean they've been out of business effectively for a long time and it's not clear how they do it. So each of these banks are now doing it themselves, each of these countries. It's not collapsed, it's not gone, it simply doesn't work the way it was intended to work. 
we've gone to nationalism again. The nation states are back. And the borderlands have come alive. In Ukraine, the fundamental borderland of Europe between the Russian mainland and the European peninsula is active. We forget the fact that during the 90s there was 100,000 people killed in Yugoslavia. The Europeans say, well, that's not really Europe. It's Brooklyn, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, this is a European affair. But it's not only the external things, the fault line between North Africa, Muslim, and Southern Europe and Europe, Christian, the Mediterranean fault line, alive not exactly as a state, the state issue, but an Islam to Europe issue. I won't say Christian because Europe is more complex. That's alive, all in small ways. Inside of Europe, it was inconceivable that 45% of Scots would vote to end the United Kingdom. That's a stunning event. And it came that they even possibly could come that close. In Belgium, the fragmentation between the Flems and the Walloons is enormous. In Spain, Catalonia wants and rightly will in some way, withdraw from the Spanish Union. In Romania, the Hungarians want to leave the Romanians. In Italy, the Northern League wants to redivide Italy. All of these seem preposterous, but the mainstream European parties are collapsing because they have no credibility. They have no credibility because seven years after 2008, they still have not been able to solve the problem. I don't regard Greece as an outlier. I regard Greece as a forerunner. Everything that has happened to Greece happened to the rest of Southern Europe. And so you are now in a situation where the borderlands, the divisions of Europe have come back to life, not only on a national basis, but a class basis. With the financial class unable to grasp what is happening to the middle class. Because remember, when you cut government workers in Europe, you've cut doctors, you've cut lawyers. This is not the Department of Motor Vehicles cutting that nasty lady. <laughs> this is cutting into the heart of the professional class. And when the professional class, who had such hopes for their future and their children, find themselves in penury, and they do, when they find themselves in an impossible position in which to live, what comes out of that is far more bitter than what comes out of the working class. And what comes out of that is an anger at everyone. And that anger is there. This time it's Muslims, not Jews. But there's a wide umbrella to include in there. It's from the right a malice against the financial classes who brought about this crisis, who didn't care about it. When you are living a life of the middle class or the upper middle class, and you lose it, for a while you retain hope. But we're out of time. As I, as I put it, some a European commissioner became very angry at me for this talk. He said, we of course can solve this. So I said, good idea, do it. 
The problem here is not that no one has thought of a proper formula or think tank hasn't produced a paper yet. The problem is the interests of Germany are so different than the interests of the rest of Europe that we are back to the problem of 1871 when Germany was first unified. There are no tanks rolling, but as one Romanian said, the new tank commander comes from Deutsche Bank. And when he shows up, he takes no prisoners. So we are back to the fundamental question of Europe. The 31 years is over. I don't expect it to resume. But Europe has always been a place of conflict and malice and anger and hatred between classes and between nations. You can't go to Europe and talk to people and not hear it. The question now is, can it be contained? I doubt it very much. The period from 1992 to 2008 was an interregnum and an unnatural one. Europe is returning to itself. And when Europe gets sick, the world gets sick with it. And this is a very dangerous situation. And you could see it, first of all, in Ukraine. Hey everyone, Peter Zion here coming to you from Colorado. Uh, we had some interesting news yesterday on April 13. Uh, the Ukrainians claimed that they shot a couple of their own domestically produced missiles at a ship called the Moskva, or the Moscow, uh, which is the, the flagship, the pride of Russia's Black Sea Fleet. Uh, the Ukrainians are saying they hit it and they disabled it. Uh, the Russians, of course, have countered, said, no, 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 we were not taken out by a weak missile. No, no, we had an accident that started a fire in our ammunition stores, which blew up and forced the evacuation of the ship. Now, whether you believe the Ukrainian story that uh, the most advanced ship that the Russians have can't stop a couple of missiles, or the Russian story where sheer incompetence led to the destruction of the most advanced ship that they have is kind of a null point. The point is that the Russians just lost their flagship on the Black Sea. Uh, they only have 12 surface combatants. This is the second one they've lost in the war. And the Russians are now showing uh, an extreme inability to use their naval vessels to do very much because if they get near shore, they get shot at. In addition, NATO is in the process of supplying the Ukrainians with more advanced anti-ship weaponry. So we are already past the high point for what the Russians can do with their Navy in the war. And we should start thinking about what it's going to look like when the Russians don't have a naval presence in the Black Sea, because we're probably going to be there in a couple of months. Now, the Russians have multiple fleets in multiple places. And so in theory, they can take ships from one theater to relocate to the Black Sea to reinforce for the Ukraine war. Uh, but one of the problems the Russians have always had in being a naval power is that their, their literals are not connected. Uh, this isn't like the United States where you can have a North Pacific or a South Pacific fleet or an Indian Ocean fleet and they can sail around Africa and get to wherever they need to go. No, 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 no. These are completely separated. The two closest theaters that the Russians could theor theoretically reinforce from are the Baltic Sea and the Arctic Sea. 
The Baltic Sea is surrounded by NATO members and getting from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea requires sailing by Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, the currently, but maybe not for much longer, non-aligned countries of Finland and Sweden, through the Danish Straits, uh, by Norway, by France and the United Kingdom, by Spain and Portugal, by France again, by Italy, and ultimately having to go through the Turkish Straits, another NATO country, uh, in order to the Black Sea. So that is, that would be asinine. Just completely idiotic to think that all these NATO countries would just like, ha ha ha, yes, you can sail your little ships by. No, 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 no. Uh, the Arctic Sea Fleet, uh, the Northern Fleet as the Russians call it, is usually the most powerful of the Russian forces because it is so much more removed from potential NATO forces. So that's where the Soviets concentrated. That's where the Russians have concentrated. But we're seeing absolutely wretched levels of ship management, especially if you want to believe the Russian line on what happened to the Moskva. And the terrain and the climate and conditions in the Northern Fleet above the Arctic Circle are the most extreme in the world. So to think that the ships up there are even capable of sailing in mass might be a reach. And just like with the Baltic Sea Fleet, it's 6,000 miles <laughs> to get to the Black Sea. So that's really not on the table either. The final fleet is the Pacific Fleet. But to get from the Pacific bases to the Black Sea, it's an 11,000-mile sail around at least two continents, and that even assumes that they can use Suez. If they can't use Suez and they have to go around Africa, even longer. So this is it. The 12 ships, well, now 10 ships that the Russians have to fight this war, they're not going to last much longer. The more advanced ones are already gone, and more advanced missiles are soon going to be targeting what is left. I'm having flashbacks here to the Cold War. Uh, we're getting to a position very soon where NATO is going to have some interesting decisions to make. NATO has not moved any forces into the Black Sea. They have tried to avoid conflicts with Russian forces wherever they can so that there's no risk of escalation. But pretty soon there aren't going to be Russian ships in the Black Sea. And in that scenario, putting a few vessels into the Black Sea to either interact with uh, the Turkish ports that are on the north side of Turkey, south side of the Black Sea, it would be diplomatically provocative, but there's nothing military going on there. It would certainly give the Russians heartburn. I, if I were in charge, I'd say, you know, this is a great time to make port visits to Georgia and sail by Sukhumi, which is an occupied city that, or well, occupied, wrong term. The Russians created a secessionist enclave in northwest Georgia back in the 1990s. It still has Russian troops there. But the Russians have been pulling troops out of it in order to reinforce in Ukraine. So it's not that I think that NATO is going to make a grab for it, but sailing within sight of it, it certainly is going to make the Russians panic. And anything that divides Russian forces among multiple locations is going to be something that's very bad for the Ukraine war effort. Or we could start dropping off supplies in, say, Romania and shipping them across the border into Ukraine. So there's a lot of options here that are about to become available, steps that are short of war and steps that are short of a direct confrontation that the Russians have proven that they can't do anything about. Uh, we may be on the verge of a new phase in the war where outside intervention isn't happening, but outside meddling absolutely is. All right.
That's it from me for today. Until next time. Welcome to a brief analysis video over the events that have happened in the last uh, 24 to 48 hours, uh, where we had a Ukrainian surface-to-surface -surface missile uh, named Neptune uh, strike a Russian warship, a major, large, very capable cruiser in the Black Sea. So we're going to go over what we know so far, uh, what are the capabilities of these systems, what are the limitations, and why was a command and control cruiser bristling with weapons, radars, defenses, and electronic warfare, able to be defeated by a subsonic missile that has its origins really in the 1970s and 80s. All right, so this is the Neptune versus the Moskva. All right, first let's talk about the Neptune R360MC. MC is the naval version of this uh, missile. There are gonna be three different types eventually. Uh, the one we're talking about today is a shore launched version. Uh, they will have a naval version, like I said, and there's also uh, gonna be an air launch version eventually. But here's a picture of it, kind of low res. Uh, but one thing that stood out to me as soon as I saw this is the fins, uh, the guiding fins are very similar to the harpoon. Uh, the overall size and shape, very similar to the American harpoon. And that booster rocket that they have there is definitely a harpoon booster rocket. So um, while they claim that this weapon is 100% indigenously made by, by Ukraine, I believe them, but they clearly took inspiration from uh, both a Russian missile and an American missile. And we'll go over both of those. So uh, in Ukraine, this anti-ship missile was announced in 2013. Back then it didn't have a name. Uh, when it was tested in 2016 and announced to the press with press wheels, that was when it was given name Neptune. Uh, it has a subsonic range of just over 260 kilometers and uh, it cruises about 10 to 15 meters above the sea until it gets to a terminal point where it then goes down to just about five meters off the water, still subsonic uh, towards its target. So these uh, Neptune operations are conducted uh, from shore with these vehicles, these transport erector launchers. And the, the Ukrainian version of this launcher at this time, uh, they have two by two packs for a total of four missiles and they are deployed uh, across six vehicles for a total of 24 uh, missiles. And uh, so it carries 145 kilogram, you know, high explosive fragmentation warhead, uh, like the harpoon, it's internally guided or inertially guided. And then it has a radar terminal homing phase at the very end where it can discriminate its own target and, uh, and go after it. So it's a, uh, you know, you can give it a waypoint. You can tell it to turn at some point. It's got some of those capabilities there. But in the end, when it turns on its radar, it's looking for its own target at the end. And again, this is a big national pride project for Ukraine. Uh, they completely did this themselves, even though you can clearly see that it has inspiration from uh, a Russian missile called the KH-35, which is what we call the Harpoonski, because it, that took, uh, um, they basically took the American Harpoon design and made a Russian version of it. And this Ukraine version looks a lot like the Russian version, which came from the Harpoon version. So there's a lot of inspiration going on here. All right, let's talk about the Slava class cruiser real quick. This was this particular one was commissioned in uh, 1982. Uh, she is the lead ship in a three ship series. Uh, they wanted to build more than three, but then the collapse of the Soviet Union happened and they only built three of these. One of these is in the Black Sea. The other two are in their Mediterranean at the time of this recording. Um, but this one operates out of the Black Sea normally. 
She was seen off the coast of uh, Syria in 2013, 2014. And so uh, she's been in that part of the world since then. Uh, she's 186 meters long, 20 meters of beam, pretty big girl. She has a co-gog uh, system, which is a combined gas and gas turbine propulsion system. So you have two gas turbines, one for each shaft that are very fuel efficient, but only go to a certain speed. If you want to get max performance in terms of speed out of a co-gog system, um, you have to turn on the second set of boost turbines and you'll get uh, up to 32 knots, but you'll get very low fuel efficiency. That gobbles up fuel quick, but it's the only way to get to 32 knots is to use your boost turbines. So uh, combine gas or gas turbines. Okay, 100 or 11K uh, cruiser is an anti-carrier mission. That's what the primary weapon is of this, is to shoot these very large sea-skimming missiles called SSN-12 sandboxes and overwhelm an Aegis defense sphere around an American fleet, eventually getting to the carrier and destroying it. These are very large missiles. They are supersonic. They're very fast, and they're designed to kill carriers. Um, as far as electronic warfare goes, she's pretty capable. She has multiple systems for defeating incoming missiles, like Rum Tub, uh, Bell Crown, and Bell Push are all different systems that kind of work together to protect uh, the Slava. So here is the Slava in profile. Here you can see a lot of her weapon systems. Uh, you can see all but one here. So starting at the bow with number one, that's a twin AK 130 millimeter cannon. It's got two barrels. That's why it's a twin. Uh, there are 16 SSN-12 sandbox anti-ship cruise missiles there. You see uh, canted facing forward. And uh, I've walked the decks of the Marshall Ustinov when it was in Boston Harbor in 1994 during a goodwill visit, again, after the fall of the Soviet Union. And uh, I can tell you she's big. These missiles are huge. You know, I described them as being like international, <laughs> intercontinental ballistic missiles laid on their side. Not quite that big, but they are formidably uh, large, these launchers. Now, uh, on the bow there, you see a couple of things besides the main gun, uh, just behind it with number three, that is a two by 12 RBU 6,000. That's rocket bomb unit. They are shot in a direction, uh, Alta 6,000 meters or less, and they're designed to be basically depth charges. They go down, uh, anything that they detect, you know, through impact or magnetic, if they have that, uh, fuse on it, they'll, they'll, they'll just explode and they shoot them, um, 12 at a time. They have six on the starboard side, six in like this half moon uh, launcher. So a total of 12. And the idea is to ring a target and then explode the RBUs around the target, displacing the water and sinking the submarine. Uh, there's claims that they use this as an anti-torpedo weapon. Um, I have no reason why they wouldn't be able to do that other than you'd have to be very lucky to actually hit a torpedo with this thing because it is ballistic. And uh, its fire control is simply point and shoot. It's not calculating any kind of intercept. Anyway, but the primary air defense here, because this could this ship could be a, a command ship, which it is in the Black Sea, and it could also defend a fleet, is the SN6 Grumble anti-air defense. This is a, a naval version of the S300, and it is a proven and very capable anti-air system. And if this ship were to come under attack by a subsonic missile, this is the weapon that they would primarily use to defend itself. And uh, it makes one wonder why it wasn't employed in in today's event but if it was employed it was ineffective that's all we know you know is that they either didn't see the attack coming which is highly unlikely considering the capability of the systems on board this ship 
or the uh, air defense capability of the SSN6 and the SSN4 Gecko, which is a short range but highly accurate version of uh, of air defense of an anti air missile. Uh, they were ineffective. That's they did not defend the ship for whatever reason. Uh, effectively, uh, we don't know a lot of things. Like we don't know how many missiles were launched. We know that the uh, Ukrainians can deploy uh, their surface-to-surface missile teams uh, from one to six trucks, each holding four missiles. So four to 24 missiles uh, could have been employed. We don't know. It might have been one missile, you know. Uh, We do know that the weather was really bad at the time of the attack. It was rainy. It was nighttime. Uh, Winds were at 18 knots. That's a very high sea state, you know, could have some seasick sailors on watch, not paying attention, not offering excuses. Just all these factors play into why uh, the ship was struck with missiles. And then finally, um, one thing that's not shown here is back by the uh, helideck, but on the hull of the ship, there are doors that open up and they have uh, uh, five across uh, torpedo launchers. So five torpedo tubes, five starboard, five uh, port. They'll shoot a a 53 centimeter torpedo, a heavyweight torpedo out the side. So this ship is bristling with weapons and and capability it's good at defending itself it's good for offensive capabilities and has the communication suites to coordinate a fleet so it could be a command ship as well this ship apparently was struck by no less than one uh missile you know we think multiple missiles but one at least one neptune missile according to ukraine I should say now, before we go any further, Russia denies that they were even attacked, but Russia has lied about everything. So anything that they deny, I implicitly think that it's the opposite. That's why I'm giving the benefit of the doubt to the Ukraines. Plus, we know that the ship was damaged at some point, set a fire, and the crew, after putting the fire out, apparently, according to Russia, they uh, then abandoned ship, and this ship is now under tow back to port. We don't know which port. I speculate Sevastopol because that's where a lot of repair facilities are. But the point is a uh, Slava class cruiser has been put out of commission by a uh, Neptune missile. And uh, just here, here are just a quick recap of what I've talked about. Poor weather conditions, 18 knots. Uh, Ukraine fired an unknown number of missiles. We don't know. Uh, They won't tell us. And it's none of our business, I guess. But what is baffling to me is how they, uh, hit this ship with all of its capability like multiple systems either weren't used or not powered on or watch standards weren't paying attention like any one of those things could have caused this and it's maybe it's all of those things maybe this ship is uh you know not in full not fully operational all that is speculation on my part i don't know but what we do know is this ship was hit with a modern subsonic based on a harpoon design roughly anti-ship missile and it should have easily defeated it and it didn't it's another baffling failure of the russian military that has been lauded as being so great and being defeated by a subsonic missile in 2022 reveals the true condition of the of the russian navy it's not in a good state I will point out here, this is the door I was talking about. This door here opens up. There's torpedo tubes in there, and they shoot uh, heavyweight torpedoes out the side here. All right. So, yeah, if you have any questions or if you want to make comments, leave them in the chat, and uh, I'll see you guys later. Thanks for watching, everybody.